0: Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code tas at liquidiv.com. You've
1: been hearing ads for ZenCaster these past months. Interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai forward slash the archaeology show and fill out the contact information so ZenCaster can help you bring your business story to life.
0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to The Archaeology Show, episode 171.
0: On today's show, we talk about sacred pools, badass prehistoric women, and massive cave drawings.
1: Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going?
0: Pretty good.
1: So we're here in the birthplace of somebody... (laughs) That's kind of a big deal, Oh, I think.
0: Somebody who thinks he's kind of a big deal.
1: <laughs> I was born literally five miles from where we're sitting right ah, now.
0: Ah, so yes. your hometown.
1: My hometown, Monroe, Washington, mm-hmm. or Washington, or depending on who you talk to. Yeah. Yeah. But,
0: oh, I'm editing and posting this episode, right? Yeah. Maybe I'll like sneak in that adorable little picture of you that I found in your grandma's bathroom. Listen. <laughs> it's you and your brother in the bathtub together. It's so cute. <laughs>
1: Everyone has embarrassing Juvenile naked photos of themselves In their grandparents bathroom <laughs> You will not post those on the internet
0: I really want to though Oh my god unless, you're so cute
1: Unless we get 500 new subscribers By June 1st then you can post it
0: Okay yeah. deal All That's right. a plan
1: So if you want to see juvenile adolescent me and my brother
0: Not even juvenile or adolescent I know, we're like Toddler two. You're, Yeah you're like three I don't
1: know kids words
0: Jason's probably one mm, Yes <laughs>
1: Then uh, become a member of the Archaeology Podcast Network and tell your friends. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, we were in a bathtub. You know what? We weren't a (laughs) sacred pool. This is another news show. And the first article we're going to talk about here is... Basically called well the the one source we're linking to, there's a lot of them. In fact, two articles from today come from American Antiquity. Or sorry, Antiquity, as they're mm-hmm. calling it. And uh not American Antiquity. That is a different journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I for some reason I just insert the word American because I'm used to saying that. Yeah, yeah. But antiquity is a different journal. Anyway, yeah. from antiquity, we'll post the original source and a couple of other sources related to, you know, some popular sources. But
0: Yeah, we we have the antiquity link for this one, but I found the Smithsonian article just more like readable well, you know they, they always are but we've got both of them and
1: that's the thing you don't often have access to the primary resource yeah. and even if you do They're not written for us. Right.
0: right. They're
1: written for people who are in that field, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of jargon, and sometimes it can be hard to wade through that and figure out what you're actually looking. We've talked about
0: that many times. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's why we do these because we like to pick through that stuff and you know kind of break it down.
1: Anyway, this one's called an ancient harbor was actually a sacred pool designed for scanning the stars. They kind of. They kind of just go straight to the punchline. Yeah. <laughs> so like, that's pretty much it. Segment like, two will be about. No. It's
0: like it's like one of those trailers where like the whole movie is in it. <laughs> yeah. It's like a 48
1: minute long trailer.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anyway. Yeah.
0: So this is really cool. It's a man-made pool in Mocha? Motia.
1: Sure. Matoya. M- M- Matoya? Sure. Sure. Motya. Okay. M-O-T-Y-A.
0: M-O-T-Y-A, Italy. It's on Sicily. It's on, actually, the modern island of San Pantaleo, oh, which I think is in, in the Sicily region. Yeah. 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 And so this man-made pool was first discovered in 1906 by an archaeologist named Joseph Whitaker. And then, in addition to the pool, he also found a man-made channel that goes out to the ocean. And because of these two things, he basically was like, ship harbor!
1: <laughs> so... Much like we're going to find in segment two, archaeologists of the time would find like two pieces of evidence and craft an entire narrative out of it that we still believe today.
0: Yeah, it's so hard as an archaeologist to like reel yourself in because you just want to know why they did it, what they did and why they did it. You have the what, you don't always have the why. And this is a a really good example of not having the why.
1: Now, I read this, but not probably as closely as you did. I just read it kind of in prep for this because you you're the one that took our notes on this one. But mm-hmm. one of the notes says the statue was discovered in the middle of the pool in 1933. Yeah. I'm wondering, how was it just discovered? Was it like collapsed and they've reinstated it? Because in the picture, in the photograph, the statue is actually upright. standing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't find out the details about that, like how it, if it was standing the whole time or if they put it back in that arrangement or, or what. But... It wasn't until 1933, so 30 years after it was initially found, the pool was, that they realized that there was a statue in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And the whole, like, harbor narrative had been had been written at that point. And they're like, ah, well, guess it fell off of a boat or something, right? And I think that was yeah. sort of what they were thinking at that point. But the next guy. Yeah, the next guy, this is another 50 years later, another archaeologist, he looked at it, looked at the pool, looked at the statue, and was like, mm, it's a little small, For a harbor, but maybe it was for ship repair. Yeah. Maybe they pulled the boats in here one or two at a time and and worked on them.
1: Right. And, you know, the article even states, because it's probably an antiquity, too, like, Depending on certain times of the year and things like that, it would have been pretty tough to navigate a ship in here. Yeah. Even if, you know, there was good access to it. But in the actual little harbor itself, it would have been pretty tough. And it's not like they had, you know, guide boats and tugboats back in the time. Yeah. I mean, they may have people that rode out into the harbor and said park there, mm-hmm. but it's not like they're towing these ships around. Yeah. So that would have been tough. And with a statue sitting right in the middle of it, it's like, who put this statue here?
0: Yeah. I mean, it yeah. would not make sense to have a statue in the middle of a harbor if ships were actually intending to use it as a harbor and yeah. honestly you couldn't even bring real big ships in there it would only be for like small sailing vessels right. maybe you know well they would have all been sailing vessels but well, yeah
1: so, i mean there's robots
0: it, the whole interpretation both harbor and like ship work area mm-hmm. they're both questionable just because it's so small and it's only five feet deep
1: yeah that's pretty that's, shallow. that's
0: another thing to take into well, account
1: i took a little bit of a question on the five feet deep thing it's like was that historically, was that figured out through exclamation? Because five feet deep might be what it is now. But mm-hmm. even today, if you've got a harbor or anything that was either man-made or is fed by tributaries or something like that, you're like constantly dredging this thing. They're yeah. Like constantly trying to dig it out, you know. And if they if they know it was man made, then they know they have the ability to dig it out. So the depth now would not have been the depth prehistorically or historically.
0: Yeah, very true. And I don't know how they got that five foot measurement. I was thinking maybe they have some kind of wall on one side of it, and they're using like a wall measurement. But it could have been a lot deeper in the middle because things often like get shallower up to the sides. So not really sure about that
1: is that but all the information that we have
0: that that's (laughs) oh my god
1: you almost missed that one (laughs) i did
0: you're the worst (laughs) so
1: there's so that's not but all the information that we have that is
0: not not so you are so bad okay so that was the sort of accepted but also people were skeptical of it belief you're still, still like laughing. cracking you're still cracking up at your really bad joke can we get to why it's a really bad joke here yeah, Okay. about 12 years ago archaeologists went looking for proof because of the skepticism around this actually being a harbor of some sort and they were looking for like the remains of you know the kind of buildings you would see around a harbor or a marina or whatever and instead they found the remains of a temple to Baal <laughs>
1: Uh, now we have all of the story
0: no. <laughs> so stupid <laughs> <laughs> and because we know this now the statue makes sense right mm-hmm. <laughs> so Baal is a Phoenician god that is sort of similar to Orion in that whole like constellation thing all always a little unclear to me and I honestly didn't go deep diving the different gods and what they mean yeah. to different people but Orion you know is a constellation and it seems like Baal was associated with that with Orion and also with that constellation
1: well I mean Constellations like Orion and the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper and Cassiopeia, we know those by names today, Mm -hmm. but they've been visible, obviously, since the creation of the planet. Right. So all beings throughout time have seen these shapes and seen other shapes and some of those really prominent ones like Orion. You can't miss Orion. Yeah. it's probably been given different names throughout the years.
0: So. I, I get that impression, yeah. And it, I don't know that they necessarily like, worshipped it as a god exactly, but no. they, they did make some sort of temple to it in this scenario. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So archaeologists drained the pool to kind of get a better idea of what was going on. And they found that the, it was never actually connected to the sea in Phoenician times. Mm-hmm. So you, you definitely couldn't have gotten a ship in there. There was no connection to any major waterway.
1: So not used for shipping, not used for repairs, not used for anything.
0: No, no. It was just a part of this temple, most likely. So that's where the speculation comes in. And honestly, this is like modern archaeologists drawing, making another narrative mm-hmm. here. But I feel like it's coming from a pretty informed place, probably, given that the temple is Baal. But the speculation is that it could have been used for astronomical observations of some sort.
1: So alien landing pad. <laughs> Clearly.
0: (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) No. The pool is oriented toward the point in the horizon where Orion, the constellation associated with Baal, rises on the winter solstice and there's other like arrangements and things around the temple there might be some stele that they found that were related to the mm-hmm. temple that are all sort of like solstice and equinox and you know all of the solar type of things right. related to that right. kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, it seems like the reflections of the water and things like that could have been used to they say it could have been used to help map the stars. Yeah. And star mapping helps aid sailors of course, but mm-hmm. you have to know where the stars are and what's going on with them, but I'm not totally convinced that you need, like, a reflection pool to be able to do that. It's not like you're going to lay a bunch of paper out on it and yeah. say, let's, let's trace this out. Yeah. So I'm not really sure how that helps. It seems like kind of a stretch to me.
0: The idea behind it is interesting, but in practice, I'm like, how do you actually do yeah. that?
1: Well, I'm wondering, like, you know, we were just down in Seattle today, and mm-hmm. we actually went up in the Space Needle and can see down around the Seattle Center there, and that was put together in 1962 for the World's Fair. Mm-hmm. And there are just weird things down there, like this half dome that squirts water out and these <laughs> flower petals that yeah. are like 15 feet across that also have water. Yeah. Well, somebody's looking at that later on going, well, I've got like, this pool here. They couldn't have fit a ship here, even though Puget <laughs> Sound is right there. Yeah. Like, what's going on? Is it possible this was just artistic?
0: It could have been. Just I like mean, It's like
1: the city putting something up going, hey, look at this. Yeah. It's neat.
0: Well, Motia was a, it was a thriving Phoenician colony. And a little bit more about the Phoenicians is that they were more of like a confederation of seafaring communities. We actually like don't know a lot about them at all. It's a really big hole in our sort of historical knowledge. I wonder if that's because they were seafaring. So they're mostly along the coasts and that kind of stuff is this sort of thing that gets covered by water over time. Who knows? But we do know that they were, they thrived from around 1500 BCE to 300 BCE. And Motia was one of their, their colonies. So that being said, maybe it was some sort of artistic expression in one yeah. of their their thriving colonies. Who knows?
1: I mean, it could have been whoever the statue is in the middle. It could have been just a, you know, I mean, there's a the temple on the side, of course, but whoever mm-hmm. the statue is in the middle, the same person or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really could have been just a, an expression of faith or spirituality. Or money. You know? Yeah. Or
0: look how rich I am, yeah, look influence. how powerful I am. Yeah. yeah. Could be any of those things for sure. Yeah. Yep. Who knows? I don't know. But now we know it's not a ship harbor, <laughs> a tiny little pool. <laughs> Definitely not a ship harbor. So good for modern archaeology, bad for past archaeologists making right. up stories.
1: Well, whoever made this. We know that it probably wasn't women because they were out being badass and hunting and not sitting at home, just crafting sculptures and feeding children from their breasts. Right. We'll find out more about that on the other side of the break. but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing. And to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy-to-use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities, as the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only 89. 89- dollars dollars for their first year a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com/apn to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. Chris Webster here from the APN. You've heard me talk about Zencaster for a few months now, and there's never been a better time to check this out and start a podcast. Zencaster has hosting tools and both audio and video podcasting capability. Many of you have already clicked on the link in the show notes, and we thank you for that. Use the code TAS, that's T-A-S at the link in the show notes, or go to Zencaster.com and use the code. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com to get 30% off your first three months. Again, use the code TAS for 30% off your first three months months at zencaster.com welcome back to the archaeology show (laughs) oh yes
0: capital tv
1: episode (laughs) 171 tass as we like to call it tass 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 all right (laughs) so everybody's seen well actually i don't know if i've actually seen it but like the movie one million bc yeah with recall watch yeah Yeah, and Clan of the Cave Bear
0: was kind of
1: what... I feel like it's kind of what that was based on a little bit.
0: A little bit. All of that, the books itself feel a little bit better. The the portrayal of women in them. Yeah, except
1: that everything in the world was invented in like four chapters in Clan of the Cave Bear from what I understand. Yeah, different
0: different issues with that book, that series. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, similar to all prequels in science fiction and stuff like that. Like everything happens in the prequel that we do now. Yeah. It's so stupid. Anyway.
0: But all of those have helped to create this image of pre-stork women as yes. basically just baby carriers and objects for men to have and rape and do with as they will.
1: I mean, listen, what I, I mean, I've been an archaeologist since 2005, both of us about the same time. Yep. And I, I can't, I don't know the time. When I would have stopped saying if somebody who is not an archaeologist asked me, well, what would prehistoric life in this time would have been like? Well, the women would have been, you know, gathering and doing the things and taking care of children. And the men were out hunting and setting up camp and doing stuff like that. That is the narrative now.
0: It it is. It still is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure that that's entirely wrong. It's just that I think that the. Well, we should we should we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here, but Oh yeah, what is this article about? <laughs> the article is called Prehistoric Women Were Hunters and Artists as Well as Mothers, book reveals. And it's based on a French book and documentary. The documentary is coming to the UK in September. And basically, mm. it seeks to debunk this simplistic division of gender roles, like we were just talking about the hunter and the gatherer.
1: Coming in September. Yeah, These guys are ripe for advertising. We should get them on the APN as guests.
0: I would love to interview them, yeah, because this sounds so interesting.
1: This is a French book and documentary, and it says it's coming to the UK in September. I I don't know if it's coming to the U.S. at all.
0: Yeah, that's a good question, but there's ways to get U.K. stuff in the yeah. U.S., and not even illegal ones. I think there's like legal ways to make well, that happen.
1: Either way, I think if anybody, because we have a pretty big audience here, if anybody listening to this actually knows anything about this and can put us in touch with these people, yeah, that would be fantastic. We'll do our own research, obviously, but yeah. it would be great to get them on to talk about this.
0: Yeah, because the the book is out in French, and the documentary in French is also out. Like That whole part of it has, oh, right. has come out already. It's just the English version. The that's, English versions yeah. are coming. I think the book might be out in English already and then the documentary is coming. Not well, positive about that. It's been
1: pretty proven in the last couple of years that if it's not on Netflix, it doesn't count. So until it's on, <laughs> no,
0: right. once
1: it gets on Netflix. I mean,
0: I'd even be willing to say any of the streaming services. But. Mm,
1: <laughs> Netflix is kind of like where it's at. So,
0: <laughs> so the book anyway. is called Lady Sapiens, The Women in Prehistory. <laughs> I love and that title. Lady Sapiens is my favorite <laughs> thing I've heard. <laughs> I love that.
1: I mean, you've kind of got no room for men because you've got ladies Sapiens, you've got <laughs> Homo sapiens. And if you're using a current definition, I'm, I'm just saying, like, where are the male sapiens?
0: Male sapiens. With it's Homo sapiens and Lady sapiens, ring.
1: there's like no reproduction. Dude sapiens. <laughs> <Dude> sapiens.
0: <laughs> so, like we've been saying, women in prehistory have been portrayed as sort of having a supporting role to, to men, right? Like, they were the ones who were gathering, they were hiding with their children from the violent world sexual objects to be exploited by men and just generally portrayed as weaker members of the group. And they needed to be protected.
1: Yeah, you know, an interesting thing about that, we just... We just in the last like month or so finally binged the series Yellowstone, mm-hmm. which is actually entertaining in yeah. its own right. I don't think it's historically accurate in a lot of ways, but
0: it's a little pro- it's got its right. problematic points, but yeah, right.
1: And then we also watched the prequel to that, eighteen eighty three, mm-hmm. and in the prequel they show like every single TV show and movie that depicts Native Americans in their. I wanna say natural setting, which mm-hmm. means they, they weren't like living in a city or on a reservation. Yeah. There was a, a handful of times in that show where they depicted like the women and children were left behind at camp while the men went out hunting. Yeah. And I think like we're saying at the beginning of this, they're not actually saying that in all societies, women were, you know, just as, I, I don't want to say equal is the right word, but didn't equal share the, the living responsibilities as men. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily divide that way. There were some sexual divisions of labor. That's always been a thing, but there were some, definitely some in, in Native American societies. Mm-hmm. And there's been some in other societies throughout the world. It's just not everywhere.
0: Yeah, I think it's, what,
1: not a, it's not a universal truth.
0: Yes. And I think what they're getting at here is not necessarily that there weren't sexual divisions of labor because of course that was going to happen because the one thing that women differentiated them from men is children they had babies and children to take care of and that i can't imagine that was any different in prehistoric times but i think the difference is is that their contribution to the society as far as sustaining it providing food getting all the things that a society needs in order to live and thrive mm-hmm. the the contribution of women is on the same level as what the men were doing when they were going out and hunting. And that could have been through fishing. It could have been through hunting as well, whatever it was. But I think their contribution shouldn't be on like a lower pedestal is kind of what their argument is.
1: If I had to guess, the right way to think about this is in the context of how you go from you know, small hunter-gatherer tribes and bands, well, tribes, really, to bands, to, you know, to... what? What is the next one up? Like, groups, and then all, all the way up to state-level mm-hmm. societies, right? Yeah, yeah. The one commonality when you're progressing up this economically evolutionary chain is the ability for some people to simply do different tasks Mm -hmm. and really specialize, Mm -hmm. whether that specialization is art, religion, or, you know, making bricks Mm -hmm. or doing something. And instead of going out to get all your food every day while you're also making bricks all day long, you buy them.
0: Yeah. It's trade. You you trade
1: or you buy Mm -hmm. your things. And I would say that any society who is at the hunter gatherer level If you want to eat, everyone's going to be hunting and everyone's going to be gathering. It might be the stronger of the group, and maybe in some cases that's a woman. In most cases, that's probably a man. Mm -hmm. But if you've got to hulk a spear into a mammoth or you've got to take down a buffalo you're going to want the stronger of your group, whoever that is, to be throwing that spear, pulling that mm-hmm. arrow back, you know, the atlatl, whatever it is, mm-hmm. because it's just sheer might that's going to take these things down, right? Yeah. So there's that. But when it comes down to, like, gathering and doing the, the nuts and the seeds and the stuff for winter, you're not going to hunt a lot of bison in the wintertime, no. you know, here in the plains. So you're going to have to store some resources, and it's going to be all hands on deck for mm-hmm. that.
0: It has to be, yeah. yeah. And, and like, you're, you're talking about getting enough calories into your body yeah. and the right kinds too, but the the right calories oh, into your body is. survive. Kind to of all survive. the
1: calories back then were the right kinds.
0: Probably, but <laughs> yeah, like you're just trying to survive here. So yeah. I think at the end of the day, women were probably bringing in through gathering and fishing and anything else they might have been doing to uh, catching small game even, you know. That would have equaled out whatever large game men yeah. were able to hunt. So I, I think they are saying that that sexual division still happened, but just don't, don't discount how important what women were doing was to the community as a whole.
1: I think one of the big problems we have is as anthropologists, we've come up with this term of sexual division of labor to imply that... Things were divided along sexual lines only because, you know, on on an average scale, like I said, men are generally stronger and have more muscle on them and women Mm -hmm. generally are less. Yeah. Right? But- that term also implies that it was men and women. Mm-hmm. It really should be something more of a strength division of labor or a uh, capacity or some other term division of labor. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, there's definitely weaker men that yeah. just like wouldn't have been super great at bow and arrows. Yeah. You know, like and,
0: a, a young, single young woman who has no children to take care of. Yeah. Prime of her life at that time versus an older man, you know, 40, 45.
1: Hey, come on now. I'm <laughs> a little too close to the
0: I'm just yeah. saying like I think that she would probably be a better hunter in that case well, depending on what they're hunting so
1: Yeah, I mean I've heard before too like women were all doing all the pottery and and you know sure in some in some societies you you can definitely see ethno-historical evidence uh, which means basically People took photographs or or wrote down notes of literally watching women make pots in the mm-hmm. American Southwest because it really was kind of their deal. Mm-hmm. You know, older women and stuff like that. They would just sit there and coil these pots around and just make them. Yep. But again, that couldn't have been universal around the world because if you look at even going back to Roman times and things like that, uh, ancient Roman times. I mean, it was it was largely men specializing in those fields as well, mm-hmm. and that didn't just develop out of nothing. Right. You know, that would have developed out of a historical capacity for that joining of tasks. Mm-hmm. And then when you, when you got into a more leisurely society, I'm willing to bet that, you know, women did kind of fall back into that house role mm-hmm. and men were out doing other things. Yeah. And that's kind of, I mean, to be honest, that's where some people are now, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: True. in I some mean,
1: families that it, hasn't changed.
0: It still happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's kind of examine like how we got to this point. The authors propose that it probably began in the 19th century with early researchers, early archaeologists, and their disregard for women. Not just archaeology, actually, probably like just science and research in general at that time
1: wait i don't i don't buy that early like british researchers had a disregard (laughs) and for women and like didn't treat them as equals oh no
0: you don't no that seems totally (laughs) false so yeah they they did at the time and they were basically imposing the viewpoint of the time onto the past and the things that they were finding in the past even even like in medical you know terms and stuff like that too like there's a lot of issues with the medical research that was going on in sure. at that time period and the way they were it, interpre- interpreting it for women versus men. So, yeah. like, all of that was happening. And it starts there. It continues on that way into the 20th century. And I think that we've begun, like, deconstructing that idea because... When I read this article, I was like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, prehistoric women were big contributors to, yeah. to society. But I didn't really think about how that the idea that they weren't had come about. So it is interesting that they're kind of pinpointing it back to the 19th century.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. there's archaeological evidence, too, if you just look at the evidence of women having different roles than they've been portrayed. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. like there's uh, they mentioned one where there's etchings found on a, a stone plaquette.
0: Yeah, I'm not really sure what Set, that is. I, I guess I,
1: like a small stone plaque of I think kind it thing.
0: is. Yeah, like a I don't know. small tablet maybe.
1: Yeah. But anyway, a woman with a baby carrier on her back leaving her hands free to do other things.
0: Yeah, there's a little bit of interpretation going on there because I don't sure. think they necessarily knew that that was why. But having your hands free is certainly helpful
1: I mean, in any time period. If you're British, if her hands are free because she's got a baby on her back and you're a British man in like 1901, she's just making more babies <laughs> <laughs> or whatever she's doing. So, mm. Yeah. Keeping uh, I, that keeping that going. <laughs> but then there's also skeletal studies being serious again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see muscle definition reflected in the bones yes. of people. Yeah. You know? And,
0: yeah. yeah. And in the upper arms specifically where women have been portrayed as not being very... Strong, not having a lot of arm strength. Yeah. So therefore they couldn't hunt. But like actually they probably did have a lot of, of upper body strength.
1: And to be honest, they didn't know some of the stuff like this back in the times when these interpretations yeah. were made. Because yeah. I'm reminded when I see this upper arm muscle thing of the, the massive study that was done on that, uh, what was it that college football team that crashed in the Everglades or something in Florida? Like their whole plane went down and it was all college football players and they all died. Oh, and there was gosh. a huge study done on their their, on their... an osteological study done on oh. their assemblage.
0: Oh, I don't think I've heard about that. Uh, yeah, wow, that's crazy. I mean
1: they were really like had overdeveloped muscles because yeah. they were college football players. Right, right. And there was a lot of stuff that came out of that study huh. of the, the basically their remains. Now I don't know how how a lot of the remains ended up in like the scientific when, record and not buried.
0: When what? <laughs> This. Well, I heard a long about this ago? when I was
1: in osteology class in like 2004. Oh,
0: okay, so it's been a long time. But ago. it was
1: not long before that, hmm. so it was probably late 90s or early 2000s.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. I just yeah. don't remember. I did not hear about that. But yeah, that but
1: it is... was a huge thing, and that's where you learn stuff like that. Yeah. You know, who would have known that you can see stuff like muscle definition in in bone growth?
0: I know? know. Like in the early 1900s, they were still trying to define race by bones. Yeah. So right. they weren't really maybe looking at yeah. the. Other things that you could learn. The things that are not not focused on, on that. Right. But yeah. right. So in Peru, there is the burial site of a young woman who is under the age of 20. This is kind of what I was talking about mm-hmm. before. And she's buried with a big game hunting and butchering toolkit, basically. All the different yeah. points and, and things that you would need for hunting and then processing big game. So... I think that is really cool and it kind of is exactly what we were speculating on before that maybe a young, strong woman would be part of a hunting party. Sure. And it might go badly for her and then she dies and gets buried with all her stuff. Yeah. Few more kind of case studies here. We see female burials with hunting tools in the U.S. There's at least 10 sites from the late Pleistocene to early Holocene between 12,000 to 8,000 B.C.E going a different direction small game hunting has been sort of underemphasized by past researchers and it probably contributed a lot to the nutrition of a community depending on where they were and what their animal hunting opportunities were
1: yeah and we're sitting up here in washington state where fish and and shellfish and things like that are still a pretty huge part of people's everyday diet i Mm -hmm. mean fish is everywhere in seattle yep Mm -hmm. salmon things like that and Fishing and setting up these these traps and things like that and processing fish and stuff. There's no sexual division of labor there. there I mean, can't that's be. like yeah. that doesn't really require a massive amount of strength. No, unless you're talking about the whalers.
0: Yeah, whaling is right. a whole other entity. Oh, whole different thing, <laughs> yeah. and not necessarily prehistoric. I'm not really sure that was happening. Oh, like 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 10,000 years ago. Right. I I don't know.
1: Up in Alaska, they've been taking whales for a long time. Maybe. So, yeah, I
0: don't know the history on that one. But but yeah, I mean, that was probably a huge part of their nutritional Mm -hmm. intake. And definitely it was in the wintertime when big game wasn't really around.
1: Right. And then the other side of this thing is women were kind of seen as constantly pregnant. Right. Right. So you've got you've got. Probably high infant mortality just because of where you're at, Mm -hmm. the survivalness of it, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So trying to figure out, well, how did people just even reproduce? Well, women must have just been constantly pumping out kids. Mm -hmm. But there's been some pretty solid evidence that they weren't necessarily doing that. And they would sometimes breastfeed until a child was four or or probably even later. Mm -hmm. And something I actually didn't even really think about is that when a woman is breastfeeding her child, she is... Less likely to get pregnant again.
0: Yeah, it's basically like ancient birth control. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's modern birth control. I mean, women kind of rely on that these days as well. If you're if you're breastfeeding, basically your period just doesn't come back after you have the baby until yeah. you stop breastfeeding. That's not always the case with some people. It, it you know, there's always variability in different bodies or whatever. But I mean, it's it's basically a form. It's a natural form of birth control, but you have to actually be breastfeeding for Mm -hmm. it to to work. And not everybody breastfeeds these days. Although maybe they should right now. There's a crazy formula shortage going on. Yeah, right. But anyway.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, One of the book contributors says that uh, women can bear children from about the age of 14 to 30, Mm -hmm. which makes sense biologically, and would have generally given that time frame about a maximum of five to six babies per woman. And that's really
0: like pumping them out. That's more on like a a two to three years of breastfeeding rather than four.
1: And that sounds like five to six babies that lived because if they have an infant die or something die, then they're no longer breastfeeding. Right. And they can get pregnant again.
0: They could. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's
1: not taking mortality into account. Right. That's probably ones that survived. Yeah. Or at least survived past the breastfeeding age. Mm
0: -hmm. Yep. So. Yeah. So, I mean, that just goes to show that, like, it wasn't constantly pregnant, therefore unable to move around as easily and do things as easily. Like a a large, largely pregnant. Sure. Or nearly full term woman. Yeah. That would be hard. But don't think that was the case.
1: No, no.
0: So one last thing is that there's plenty of burials and sites that show that women achieved high status. And one in particular that the book mentions is the Lady of Kavillion. And she was buried with a skull cap of seashells. And it just was sort of in this way that really showed that she had achieved high status in her community and that she was important enough to be buried this way as compared with the other burials in the area. So that was pretty cool.
1: Okay. Well, that's pretty interesting. Looking forward to all that coming out in a way that we can consume it.
0: I know. I'm hoping that we'll be able to watch it because I'm very intrigued. For sure, I'd love to see it.
1: Yeah. And again, if anybody knows anybody related to this project, let us know and put us in touch. So we can have it in there and maybe talk to him on the podcast. Yeah,
0: definitely. That would be awesome. So
1: that would be really cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we're going to go from there and see if maybe women were contributing to making giant rock art in Alabama. (laughs) I'm sure they were because we're talking tight spaces. And if you're talking sexual division of labor and you need the smaller people getting in there, women and children. There you go. Please stand up. Slave
0: (laughs) labor. There you go. Back in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.
1: want to keep this conversation going want to talk to the host of this show and other fans then join our membership program and get exclusive access to the hosts other fans and early access to these episodes and bonus segments and content you'll also get forever access to our live show back catalog and any other shows ad free head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for details that's arcpodnet.com slash members Welcome back to episode 171 of the Archaeology Show, and we are talking about gigantic rock art in Alabama. Yeah, this has been making the rounds, so we figured we'd talk about it. It actually made the rounds so far that it was in my weather chan, my nightly weather channel video <laughs> watching, even though it has nothing to do with weather.
0: And that might sound weird to you. <laughs> it. It seemed weird to me, too, but Chris likes to fall asleep to weather channel videos.
1: Listen, they're short. They're informative. I learn about the stars coming up. I learn about weather patterns. I learn about tornadoes. Not How just...
0: many times have you dropped your phone on your face?
1: I mean, not much on my face. I'm usually, like, laying on my side. I have dropped it down, like, the side of the RV, though, into the abyss next to our bed. Anyway... Again, we are linking to the original Antiquity article, but there's a lot of people republishing the article from the conversation because they allow that. Mm-hmm. And there was a science alert one that I was actually looking at originally, but that even says right at the bottom, republished from the conversation, oh, which really? they didn't even touch it. They just put oh, it on just, their website.
0: Oh, it's just like a direct copy. Yeah. And Crazy. you can do
1: that. They actually say it on the, I was looking for that on here mm-hmm. and it says through a Creative Commons license, feel free to republish it. So, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I think for the just,
0: free content, I guess. <laughs> I think
1: they just want attribution. Oh, so, you know, and it yeah. worked because I can't. Back to here instead. Yeah. Anyway, what they found in a cave in Alabama is on on the the kind of like the mud ceiling, the really mm-hmm. kind of soft, I'm calling a mud, but it's really just kind of softish rock yeah. that you can carve into. Yeah. And it, and it must not have a lot of draining going on because it would this kind of art would just be. Like, I don't know, muddled and washed away yeah. after 2,000 if years. It's but, that
0: soft. Yeah, I yeah. think it would.
1: Anyway, they say it's the largest known cave images found in North America. And I immediately said, I doubt it. But then I saw it said cave images because oh, I was thinking so rock in art in general. Yeah. This is just in a cave. Yeah,
0: because we saw some really huge ones in Utah. Remember? They were bigger than normal humans. Yeah,
1: the vernal petroglyphs, they're yeah. called, are, are massive. But mm-hmm. to be honest, um, well, we'll get to it, but some yeah. of these are really big inside of yeah. this uh, cave here. So, anyway, we'll we'll get with the interpretations. Of course, because it's in a cave that is not really lit from the outside very well, you got to bring bring torches in. Mm-hmm. They say it may represent spirits of the underworld. Of course, it's always I, religion.
0: Yeah, I mean, I could yeah. see that though. Like, I mean, why, I could see that. Why else would you draw in a dark cave where humans can't really see it very well? Or at all, unless they have a torch. Unless you who's it for? Unless you
1: were imprisoned there.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, that's dark. <laughs> Who knows? Wow. Well, I don't know. I, can, I guess I can kind of see the whole like underworld spirit connection. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah,
1: Well, some of the inscriptions that they talk about in the article is a, one of them is a diamondback rattlesnake, which mm. was sacred to the people of the Southeast. Mm-hmm. And that was almost three meters long. Gross. That's big.
0: <laughs> in real yeah. life, super gross. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: we're talking prehistoric times here, so maybe they were giant rattlesnakes. Uh-huh. No, that's not quite no, old I enough. I don't think that's how
0: that works. Yeah. Three meters though. I mean, you could have a snake that long, right?
1: You can, but I don't know about a rattlesnake. Yeah, maybe not that long. They don't get long. that big. They, yeah, probably they def- not. Three meters is like about 10 feet. and. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely get a rattlesnake that's approaching five, six feet right now. Mm -hmm. So maybe 10 feet.
0: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Mm -hmm.
1: But there's other reasons why it may be three meters long, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, There's a human figure, like a sort of an anthropomorph, we call it. Just like a kind of a human figure.
0: Yeah, kind of like blocky and square looking, right? Wasn't Mm -hmm. really good. Yeah, But that was
1: 1.8 meters long, Mm -hmm. which again, 1.8 meters, you know, two meters would be about... Seven feet, one point mm-hmm. eight meters, would be about the height, the size of a tall person. Yeah, yeah. So that's not too crazy. Mm-hmm. So how do they know how old this is? They're saying it's about just under two thousand years old. Yeah,
0: because caves, cave or rock art is notoriously hard to right. date. So how are they dating this? And they
1: didn't date the rock art, right? Which is why I'm a little skeptical here. Mm. Now they did say that, of course, you would have needed to light the inside of the cave in Mm -hmm. order to see what you're drawing right right and they say the cave was lit by because they've got evidence of this prehistoric people using a flaming torch of american bamboo first off i didn't even know there was american bamboo Second,
0: nope, but that makes sense. Yeah, they made grows, a torch yeah. of that. Okay. And in
1: order to keep these kinds of things going, you got to kind of stub them against the wall to kind of reignite oh, like them and knock
0: off the well, end you get end that's the burned or off whatever. the ends
1: burned, and then you get the embers down inside the, the bundle of sticks. You know, oh, okay, sure, um, yeah. So so it just kind of keeps going. Well, that stubbing and the carbon that was left behind is what they radiocarbon dated.
0: Oh, well, hey, that's pretty good evidence that's that they.
1: Pr- that's pretty good, but can you really correlate that with the actual yeah, rock I mean, art? You
0: don't know for sure,
1: or, or with the original were the original inscribers of this rock art either lighting it in a different way or lighting it in the same way. But then people have come through there centuries beyond and had to light their own way. And so now we're getting this layering of, you know, potential yeah. layering and and maybe the old stuff washed away and the new stuff's on top of it. I don't know. There's, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say it's conclusive.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a bit of an interpretation, but I don't know. It seems pretty good. Do they have any, if they have evidence of multiple occupations by different peoples at different times, then that would definitely call it more into question.
1: Well, in the radiocarbon dates have a 300 year span. One thirty three right. to four thirty three oh, CE, okay. so it's yeah. definitely multiple groups of people potentially. potentially you know, yeah. But that is within the error bars of radiocarbon dating too. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if anybody's saying this was like a a one time event where these things were just made and then that was it. Yeah. But and I I'm, I would be guessing that that's not the case.
0: Probably not. Yeah, people usually revisit yeah areas like this over and over
1: interesting thing is there is pottery that was found in the cave and Mm. these potteries dated basically well there are some ways you can date pottery but one of the ways is dated is through a stylistic representation Mm -hmm. what does it look like and one of the ways what that that correlates with the dates they found okay so that either means one of i would say two primary theories one either a this stuff was made well into prehistory and we don't know when and these people for 300 years revered it and saw it as a sacred site came in celebrated it with their torches looked at it Mm -hmm. left their pottery behind for whatever reason and that was it or the pottery and the torches were left there by the people who made the rock art Mm -hmm. so
0: so the rock art is probably either contemporaneous with or older than the pottery and torches right Though it could be newer, too, but that seems less. Hard likely. to say. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, anyway, I think I'm just like being a little skeptical. Yeah, on that. <laughs> yeah. kind
0: of spiraling down like the yeah. the possible options. Yeah, but it's I mean, always the, hard to say.
1: Right. I mean, the thing is, this wasn't like something people would come and just sit back and admire either. The ceiling of this cave is, in general, only about two feet high.
0: Oh wow! Very yeah. very low. Yeah. So you're, you're you're like laying on your back. Yeah. to to carve these things in. Yeah,
1: and you're you're scraping yourself along and to even see it in full, you, I mean, you would have had to have a lot of light in there and be able to kind of like interpret and look down or whatever, but yeah. it wouldn't have it would have been something you more from a spiritual standpoint that you more just like sat with and knew it was there mm-hmm. and you could see parts of it, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't really be able to sit back and like look at the whole thing.
0: Right. You
1: know. So I don't know. I don't know what was going on there. Hmm.
0: Yeah. So if it was spiritual use, I see what you're saying. If it was for spiritual use after they were carved, then you would just almost be experiencing it in the dark, probably. Yeah. Or with a small portion of it lit up. Yeah, for sure.
1: For sure. These images were pretty hard to see and even by archaeologists. And in fact, they weren't actually seen by archaeologists. We knew about this cave, apparently, Mm -hmm. but nobody knew there was anything on the roof for a long time Mm -hmm. on the ceiling. And... That's until they did photogrammetry. Now, we've talked about photogrammetry before, uh, but just a quick primer on that. You basically take uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of photographs mm-hmm. at different angles, and this would have been really difficult to photograph, given its distance you know, between the wall and the ceiling. And the, the darkness, floor and the ceiling. Too, Yeah, and the darkness. Well, you can yeah. pretty well light it, I'm sure. Yeah. But using photogrammetry, they were able to basically stitch together a 3D representation of the ceiling, and then essentially pull the floor away by up to about four meters so you could digitally stand back and look at it.
0: Oh, that is so cool. I didn't quite understand what that meant, but that makes more sense now that, because they, yeah, okay, that's really cool. Yeah,
1: so that's how they were able to see all these things. And then they more than likely, I didn't read the original article, but they more than likely used something like D-Stretch to essentially... Alter or change the color profiles and saturation and exposure rates. Yeah, in order to make the images come out. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, D-Stretch is a program that was set up. In fact, you can download the D-Stretch app, I'm sure. I don't know if you still can, but Mm -hmm. D-Stretch was a program set up to just do that on a photo with preset conditions that we know work. Mm -hmm. But people who are really doing this would probably start with a preset and then tweak it until images start to come out.
0: Right. Yeah. So... That's cool. Yeah. It is interesting, though. Like They must have been able to see a little bit of them to even know to do the photogrammetry to begin with, right?
1: Well, I think that if I had to guess, I mean, maybe. Yeah. But if I had to guess, even if they didn't know anything was there, researchers and archaeologists like to just over-document stuff. So if you found pottery and you found these smudgings and carbon dating and stuff, you're oh, gonna, like on
0: the ceiling. Yeah, yeah you're gonna animals. come in with
1: other funding and you're gonna map the entire thing. Yeah. And photogrammetry is a really inexpensive tool right now that mm-hmm. we have. If you just have to come in there and I mean lighting it would have been the the most challenging part, but mm-hmm. just taking a whole bunch of digital pictures, I mean to be honest, you can do it with your phone. Yeah. As long as you know where those pictures are. You now that that's the challenge with photogrammetry too. You have to know like You don't necessarily have to know, but it helps to know like the the distance and, you know, all that and the time and space where the pictures are actually taken from because Mm -hmm. when it stitches together, it helps create this, you know, this accurate representation of what you're looking at. Right. I mean, it's a really cool tool. And like I said, you could download an app right now and do photogrammetry on your coffee mug sitting on your table in front of you and make a 3D Mm -hmm. representation of it. Yeah. Won't be super great. It'll be a little curvy and blocky, Mm -hmm. but it'll be pretty much exactly what these guys did. Yep. Just with more precision. Yeah. So. That's really cool. Yeah, it's uh it's neat seeing all these tools being used and in, in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that we can do with them and it, the article kind of goes into down a rabbit hole on the rock art that we don't know exists. Like, how much cave rock art and other stuff is out there in the world that we've just, like, we're not even aware of.
0: Yeah, because we can't see it without... Right. Because the cave is dark, because the cave is inaccessible, because there's so many reasons why we wouldn't be able to see. it. we can't get the right angle. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you remember going to Petroglyph National Park? Yeah,
1: in Arizona. Or, no, New Mexico. in New Mexico. Yeah, Yeah, outside of Albuquerque.
0: Albuquerque. And we were walking along the path, and it was one of those out-and-back hikes. And I feel like it was at a, the, a time of day where the sun changed quickly and we were seeing different things mm-hmm. on the way back than yeah. we were on the way out, not just because it was the other side, but because the light had changed so much that like, it was just making different things pop out of the rocks. Cause there's like petroglyphs everywhere in that park. So
1: yeah. yeah. And it was it was like mid to late afternoon that we started, and the sunlight was like straight on some of those things, and you couldn't you see just anything. You couldn't see
0: anything. It just looked yeah. like a kind of shiny-ish rock, but yeah. yeah.
1: So if you are going to something like Petroglyphs National Park, I would say go in the early morning or the late afternoon. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Little... So.
0: Little little uh, tip from from us. Pro tip. Pro tip. <laughs> pro tip. <laughs> yeah.
1: So. Yep. All right. Well, that's pretty much it. Again, if anybody knows anyone associated with that documentary and book coming out about prehistoric women's Lady Sapiens.
0: Women's? Did you women's, say women's? women's? Women's. Prehistoric women's. Uh, women's. The women's <laughs> folk.
1: Then, yeah, please put us in touch, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or connect with us on all the socials, wherever mm-hmm. you find ArchPodNet or wherever you listen to this. Yep. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Be sure to look down at your phone and click on any of our affiliate links. There's a really cool one in there called Motion, which I use and Rachel uses for all of our task and calendar scheduling. It's pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a free version and then you can use uh, the paid version as well, which gives us a little bit of a kickback, but also other stuff in there.
0: Yeah. Even just clicking on these links is really helpful to us. Even if yeah. you don't do anything with it, it's just clicking on the link shows the advertiser that people people are looking at the things that Absolutely. we're putting in there. So it's, it's helpful.
1: Yeah, and check out that one for Zencaster if you're interested in advertising on other podcasts, not just ours. Mm -hmm. Check out that Zencaster link because there's a pretty good discount for advertisers in there and and a little bit of a kickback for us, as I mentioned. But Mm -hmm. you can get your message, even if you're not in archaeology, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're a business owner or have the ability to do this, click on that link and Zencaster will guide you through creating an ad and getting it in front of and on the podcast that, you know share your audience yep whether that's ours or not doesn't matter it's across the whole Zencastro platform definitely so, all right with that we will see you guys next week bye thanks for listening to the archaeology show feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com find us on Facebook Instagram and Twitter at arcpodnet Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden.
0: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
1: Thanks for listening. Please consider joining our growing core of members over at archpodnet.com slash members. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Sandwich.